0: They're getting £250 million contracts, but we don't know the price per item that they are being paid. And just that bare set of facts, which is a set of facts not disputed by government, it's impossible rationally to, to justify it.
1: Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. The BMJ is a champion of openness and transparency in research, in clinical practice, and in health policy. But if you've kept an eye on the journal recently, you will have seen that when it comes to COVID-19, governments are being less diligent about managing competing interests than they should be. I'm Cameron Abassi, Executive Editor of the BMJ. And to talk about these issues, I'm joined in this podcast by Julian Morm QC, one of the lawyers behind the Good Law Project. The project has brought legal actions against the government from Brexit and the prorogation of Parliament, and now when it comes to procurement during the pandemic. Have cronyism and corruption indeed damaged the pandemic response? Welcome Julian.
0: Hi Cameron. thanks for having me on.
1: It's a real pleasure to have you on today. Um, Can you begin, Joe, by talking us through the origins of the Good Law Project uh, and telling us a little bit about how a leading tax lawyer like yourself um, ended up becoming a leading challenger of the government's uh, pandemic
0: response? So um, I got to start in 2013 where I had um, a successful, lucrative but Fundamentally, quite dull um, practice as a tax lawyer, um, and all around, all around me was raging this debate around tax avoidance, um, and I basically just thought, actually, I don't want my life to be about the accumulation of ever more money, um, and I just, you know, in a way, I sort of threw my toys out of the pram, and I said, right, I'm going to, I'm going to get stuck in and um, in this debate. Uh, and bugger the consequence for my income. Um, And crossing that Rubicon actually uh, was a really, really important moment for me because it made easy everything that's gone since. And then the Good Law Project um, came about in the aftermath of uh, what was a couple of very disappointing years um, for people like me um, politically. I was one of that uh, constituency that was lucky enough to benefit from the Erasmus program, and we were—you um, might describe it as—radicalized by our uh, attendance uh, at European universities um, uh, into becoming, you know, vigorous supporters of the EU. Uh, and then we lost, you know, the the referendum, and I was pretty distraught about that. Um, in the interim, my sort of campaigning around tax avoidance had brought me to the attention of some uh some charities and NGOs that were active in the space and they were asking me to advise on their cases. Uh, and in the aftermath of the referendum I thought, well why am I waiting around for someone else to come and ask me to take a point? Why don't I um, uh, work out the point that I think is best to take and take it myself? And indeed, I think it was only two days after the referendum, two or three days after the referendum that I, Um, crowdfunded for something that uh, eventually Gina Miller took over and became um, the first of those um, two enormous constitutional law cases. Um, And that was in sort of mid-2016. By um, early 2017, um, I'd sort of proven myself a bit. And I I was still then... And really until the beginning of this year was just, you know, one dude with his um, trusty ageing um, Nokia. And uh, But at the beginning of 2017, somebody said to me, look, here's um, 10 grand, no strings attached. Why don't you see if you can use it to amplify the work that you're doing? And the Good Law Project was born out of that moment.
1: Hmm. Fascinating story. I mean, there are a couple of things to pick up on that, uh, Joe. I mean, one of which you mentioned funding. If we get here to talk about openness and transparency, um, I mean, 10 grand doesn't get you too far. <laughs> I don't think still. Um, how, how do you fund uh, the organisation? Um, and um, how, how is it sustainable?
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Um... The 10 grand paid for a few interns for a few months, and it paid for us to get up a especially crappy website, um, which we've managed to improve um, modestly. Um, But we didn't have any staff at all until uh, the middle of 2019, when we took on one person, the COO. And now we have 10 or 12 staff and um, we're in the process of recruiting two or three more. And our funding um, comes from a very good source. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who Ooh. give us small sums of money every month in direct debits. So Ooh. we get uh, direct debit funding, we get um, what I've learned to call ambient donations, like small one-off donations from members of the public. Um, the litigation that we bring is largely funded through crowdfunding. And again, the average donation on a crowdfunding site, certainly on ours, tends to be about 30 quid. Um, If you look at bigger donors, um, in aggregate, they might make up um, 10% of our total funding. So we have a very, very democratic... Um, funding model. We're not a charity, but we try to hold ourselves to the same standards as a charity. And so if you look on our website, you can see our annual report. Um, And I absolutely um, agree with you, Cameron, the way in which you uh, show the world uh, that your activities are more likely than not to be good activities is by revealing Mm. to the world who funds them. Um, That seems to me to be basic common sense and, um, you know, if anything, I want us to be more transparent. So we're thinking about how we might give tokens um, to uh, those who give us money so that they can look on our database themselves and adjust themselves the information that we hold on them. Um, we're thinking about employing somebody to do work for us, um, uh, securing that all of our case materials are published and published much more regularly than presently they are. We, we, we want to put in, into the public domain everything. So the case that we're launching on Monday that we may or may not come on to talk about, we're even publishing the legal advice, um, which has horrified the lawyers, but we think is a good thing.
1: Yeah. So as a consequence of that funding, how do you then decide which, which actions to pursue? Um, are, are the people, is it, are you saying we're going to launch litigation in, on this particular topic around this issue and then you seek
0: crowdfunding? How, how does it all come together? Um, the funding always um, postdates the decision to act. Uh, The funding for particular pieces of litigation comes from crowdfunding almost invariably. There are a couple of instances where um, we've got five or 10 grand to sort of work on something, particularly stuff in less fashionable bits of the um, litigation marketplace. Um, But the decisions are made... um, in a, uh, a nuanced way, he said, um, trying to uh, dignify <laughs> it. Um, the reality is um, we identify issues that trouble us, that we think trouble others like us, that have political saliency and that we think are justiciable. In other words, um, you know, there's a good legal point there. Uh, and if all of those qualities are present, And if um, we can get hold of the right lawyers, and if we happen to have enough um, time, which for us is a very scarce commodity, scarcer than money indeed, then um, we will instruct counsel. We move very, very quickly. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we've been able to succeed, I think, is we're super, super fast at making decisions.
1: When we come to the pandemic and, and the health issues more specifically and, and the contracts uh, that you've become very well known for and the procurement side, what you seem to be launching a whole slew of uh, actions uh, at the moment. Can you give us a sense of, of, of the breadth of those uh, before we go into detail on some of those?
0: Yes. So... Um, on PPE procurement, we have a judicial review of uh, afoot in relation to a £32 million PESFIX contract, in relation to £108 million of contracts with Planboy, in relation to a £252 million contract benefiting IANDA, We have um, further judicial reviews afoot in relation to five further contracts granted to pest fix for a further 300-odd million pounds. We have a judicial review afoot in relation to the government's decision to commission, I think, 85 million pounds worth of testing from Abingdon Health. We have uh, a judicial review afoot in relation to the government's failure to consult the National Screening Committee in relation to its moonshot project, and also uh, in relation to its Um, odd choice of um, testing counterparties. We have proceedings afoot in relation to the decision to award without any tender contracts to uh, old associates of Gove and Cummings, Public First, and another judicial review in relation to old associates of Gove and Cummings, Hanbury. We have a judicial review afoot in relation to a systemic Um, Disinclination to abide by the law in relation to the government's transparency obligations around the entry into of these contracts. Um, And there are probably others that I've forgotten. Oh, there is uh, one more as well that we just launched earlier this week, a judicial review in relation to the 250 million pounds uh, that the government paid to a Floridian jeweler who hired a Spanish Mm. businessman for $50 million. To help him find the PPE to meet uh, the obligations that he had under his, as he describes them, lucrative contracts with the United Kingdom Government.
1: I mean, there's so much there and you saw it, you're saying, I mean, every one of those you said is uh, is afoot, uh, the review is afoot. What does that mean to the, to the layman, to the non-lawyer? What does that mean? What is the status of these cases? And I guess the, the question people will have is that we appreciate legal proceedings take, take time. Um, there are all these cases that are active at the moment. Are any getting close to, to being reviewed?
0: Yeah, so uh, we have a hearing on the transparency case in February. We have hearings presently, at least, in relation to the three... PPE cases that I started off by mentioning in February as well. Um, but uh, to me, um, thinking about the hearing and the outcome of the hearing, uh, a natural way to think about the legal process, is slightly to miss the point. Um, we look upon litigation as having legal effects, but also having political effects. So Mm. we don't think that we only win if we get to court and the judge finds in our favour. We think we win. This is our metric, our preferred metric, Mm -hmm. where um, the pressure that we help to bring to bear upon government sounds in political terms. Government cares much more about the political climate around its actions than it does whether it loses a, a sodding court case. Um, and yeah. so, to us, the fact that um, most of the case studies in that blockbuster National Law of Office report from earlier in the week are cases that we are bringing, that we have chosen to put into the public domain and keep in the public domain, is powerful testimony to the success of our strategy, um, and will be powerful testimony to the success of our strategy, um, whether those judicial reviews succeed or whether they fail. Um, you know, we, we oughtn't to live in a society in which any of this is necessary. Government ought to be abiding by its transparency obligations without threat of legal proceedings. It ought to be meeting its clear legal obligations to publish contracts, not to redact from them sensitive information, uh, to uh, regard public transparency as being a public good, um, rather than something to be avoided whenever possible. And if we lived in that world with a government government that um, shared our view, and I imagine your view, Cameron, about what good governance looks like, there would be no need for the good law project. Um, but we do not live in that world.
1: No, and and do you think um, you spelt out a little bit what you know what this tells us about how this uh, government is being run, how the Johnson administration works? Is this how atypical does this seem to you, or how unusual is this? Um, how concerning is it?
0: Well, it's 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 deeply alarming, actually, um, and it seems to me that. If we were looking from abroad at what was going on in England, if you transplant um, this saga to France or Italy um, or Spain or um, Nigeria, you would, um, as a, an Englishman, um, look down your nose at what those corrupt foreigners are getting up to. And you'd probably be quite right to do it. Indeed, I had a conversation with a PhD researcher earlier in the week um, who is writing a doctoral thesis on comparative corruption in um, medical procurement in the United Kingdom and Nigeria and her preliminary view is that things are worse in the United Kingdom because at least in Nigeria they understand they have a problem that they need to address. Mm. Um, so I think things are, are not good here. And I, uh, when asked to sort of illustrate that with a, a particular fact, I would always point to the prorogation of parliament as being an act so offensive to... Our conception of what it is to live in a democracy that not even Donald Trump um, has mm. tried it. Trump never tried to su- suspend Congress. Um, and yet we kid ourselves that we are living in a, a functioning, well governed democracy. I do not believe that to be the reality. And indeed, for me, even more alarming than the fact of the prorogation was how quickly our media scuttled to normalize that profoundly anti-democratic act. I still get, as you can hear, um, forgive me, um, very cross when I think about that because um, what it reveals fundamentally is quite how um, complacent we are We live in a country, I think this is what collectively we believe, that has a government that cannot really do anything seriously wrong. And therefore all of these stories that we read that look awful, that to outsiders um, look like corruption, um, to uh, Englishmen, and you'll forgive me for using the masculine form, I do that deliberately and to make a, a a, a, a point about um, the, the national character that I'm referring to that we Englishmen are not capable of doing wrong. And that, I think, is the um, cultural uh, barrier to uh, the population seeing this for what it is and um, punishing government for it in ways that it seems to me government should obviously be punished.
1: Yeah, so I mean there's a the cultural component. What other factors do you think are enabling this? Because um, if we think back 10, 15, 20 years, this, this behaviour to accept uh, the way you put portrayed it would have been unthinkable um and perhaps it went on but so brazenly i think you know we, um, few people would have had the gall to to do what's been happening um w- w- what's al- what's allowed it to happen is it a lack of scrutiny from the media from others how do you get into a position where almost anything you do you can explain away and not really answer or be held accountable
0: for I think there are a number of overlapping factors, actually. Um, The first is uh, we had um, in Downing Street, um, uh, let me uh, use a pipe expression, uh, an iconoclast. Um, Mm -hmm. Cummings wasn't much interested in um, process. He wasn't much interested in uh, the truth, um, in my opinion. And he, created a world in which uh, opposition to what he wanted carried with it a profound cost that everybody understood. I mean, that's the lesson, right, that every civil servant learned from the defenestration of the Chancellor of the Exchequer for crossing Dominic Cummings. Every civil servant mm. learned from that episode that either you did what um, Cummings or um through him his uh, team wanted, or um, you would pay the price. Uh, And so I think that was a real um, step change for the civil service. And I get lots of calls from civil service, civil civil servants. I get, I don't want to exaggerate, I get some calls from civil servants (laughs) telling me that um, they know that what is happening is profoundly wrong. People have, both inside and outside the civil service, uh, a very clear conception. Firstly, that there is a price to be paid for doing the right thing. And secondly, um, that they do not want to pay that price. And um, I don't want to be too judgmental. Everyone's life is different. Everyone has a different set of... um, factors to balance when they make these decisions. Um, But if one asks the systemic question, the question, Cameron, that you asked to me about what is going wrong, um, I think that is a a really serious feature. Everyone is thinking to themselves, well, if I hang on in there, I might get um, a little bit of a juicy contract of my own later. If Mm. I speak up now, um, that will not happen. And through the accumulation of those decisions, a culture uh, arises in which um, wrongdoing can happen and no one call it out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's interesting, certainly when money is involved and commercial interests, you can you can see ex- exactly what you've outlined there. Uh, on the medical and scientific side, I, th- I think there's a similar concern that we have in that um, not many people who work with government or in very senior positions have spoken up, who's resigned, you know, if, you're, if we're so upset about the way things have unfolded, the number of deaths, the way the pandemic response has been um, organised, um, where are the resignations, where are the people uh, dissenting? And and that that's a little hard for us on the outside to understand that that, that dissent doesn't seem to be taking place.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is some dissent, isn't there? Um, is it Philip Putnam who is persisting in his legal action, no doubt expensive and difficult uh, against Pretty Patel? Uh, and then Sir mm. Alex, who conducted the investigation into her bullying, who resigned um, yeah. today. Uh, a number of permanent secretaries have gone. Um, Uh, But there is not enough of it. There is not as much as we um, should expect. And there is certainly uh, not as much of it as as we would want. And, um, you know, it it creates a world in which um, bad things can happen without sanction, because no one is prepared um, to call them out in ways that matter.
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly, I mean, you're... Or making um as as much noise as you can i mean one um way of dismissing your uh, the claims you've made would say that you you're an ex-labor party uh, person um and this is politically motivated i mean do you think your put your political background um interferes with um the, the campaigns that you're launching
0: No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I obviously hear your point. I haven't been a member of the Labour Party for three or four years. I have no intention of joining the Labour Party again, or any other political party for that matter. Um, And I had a conversation with a journalist at The Telegraph uh, a couple of weeks back, uh, and I had been warned that he might ask me about that issue. And I tackled it head on. And I said to him, look, um, for me, the work of the Good Law project in this strand is about holding the government to account. And of course, if you've got a government that is a conservative government, um, you are going to be criticising a conservative government. But um, when you have uh, a government, again, that is a Labour government, um, we will be in its face, when its governance is poor, in exactly the same way as we are with the Conservative Party.
1: Yeah. So you're tackling the issues, and and where you're seeing, uh, you know, the governance issues are around transparency. Uh, if you were to characterise what's been happening this year in relation to pr- procurement and the pandemic, what what are the consistent features that you've identified in terms of? Uh, the way business is being done?
0: So, um, there has been a cultural decision made in government that it shall not regard itself as being accountable for its spending. Um, There has been a cultural decision made in government that um, process is a thing that gets in the way rather than being necessary to secure good outcomes. There has been um, a decision um, that I still don't understand, really, to procure at rates um, and in volumes and at costs that defy logical explanation. So. And to me, this is the big unanswered question about PPE procurement. We have bought 32 billion items of PPE. We have consumed in the period of February to November um, at an annualised rate of 6.8 billion items of PPE. Now, obviously, um, talking about billions of items is a rough um, metric, but it is still a proxy. Um, for the rate at which we have overpurchased at the top of the market. Those are the government's figures by the way and you don't just need to rely on these figures because you can um, see the shipping containers clogging up Folkestone, you can see the shipping containers in fields of Suffolk, you can see that the NHS warehouse in Daventry is um, crammed to the rafters and indeed we will soon learn uh, that we have bought so much PPE at top of the market prices without any um, transparent competition process that we are having to store it in warehouses in China.
1: Mm. <laughs> it seems incredible. The things you said there, no accountability, no process, and essentially o- over-purchasing, just buying, 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 buying. How do... How is any of that at all justifiable?
0: Well, I'm the wrong person, Cameron, to ask that question of, I'm afraid. (laughs) Because to me, it is um, utterly inexplicable. So one of the odd things is that government has not um, told us the per unit prices it is paying uh, those from whom it buys. (laughs) And that creates a real problem if you see companies going through VIP lanes um they're getting um 250 million pound contracts but we don't know the price per item that they are being paid and just that bare set of facts which is a set of facts not disputed by government it's impossible rationally to to justify it
1: yeah I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, the government would say, and they, I, mean, I mean, let's use the analogy of a public inquiry. We've been calling for a public, public inquiry, and one of the responses to that is, no, we're too busy dealing with a pandemic. We haven't got time for public inquiry. Uh, one of the, well, the main argument to do things the way the government has been doing them is that, again, it's a pandemic, we need to act fast, Um, We can't go out to tender. We need to make these decisions quickly. Uh, Do you think that's
0: justifiable? Well, um, like every explanation, there is um, a kernel of truth in it. So back in March, uh, when there were terrible shortages experienced by your listeners, the need to um, get PPE in quickly by any means necessary was profound. Uh, No one needs me to say that. But if you look at the Sega case, for example, you can see that in June, on the 4th of June, uh, as the first wave of the pandemic was nearing the bottom of its downslope, We bought 10.2 million gowns from this jeweller based in Miami. And you can look at the experimental data that DHSC produces uh, of consumption of gowns. And at that moment in time, we had consumed about 3 million gowns. So why on earth is government... Um, buying 300% of the total number of gowns consumed hitherto in the pandemic at top of the market prices from a jeweller based in Florida. Um, There is no good answer to that question. Um, And, you know, it gets worse. If you look at coveralls, um, isolation suits and coveralls, Uh, you look at how much money we've spent on them and you extrapolate um, from such price data uh, as we have available to us as to the prices government was paying and and you end up concluding that we have bought about 36 years worth of supply of that item at pandemic level consumption rates. Um, These are... Staggering, staggering failures, um, and it gets worse because that stuff is uh, we, that we've paid vast amounts of money for. Um, we we haven't been able to test to see whether we've got what we bought. It's sitting in shipping containers over the winter, so it could well end up getting damaged or mildewy. Um, it doesn't have um, use by dates that extend. Um, almost four decades into the future so even if it is all right and even if it doesn't get mildew and um, we won't be able to use it anyway i mean it's uh, I, I i don't understand um how we get into that situation but um even uh as i uh exercise the full residual power of my imagination i cannot think of a good explanation um i know for sure to bmj
1: readers and to anybody listening um uh this will these numbers are mind-boggling um and as a as a former tax lawyer can you just tell us a little bit about how is it possible that so
0: much money is accessible so readily well we have um uh, notionally at least parliamentary controls on executive spending. In other words, the government can't spend money without Parliament say so. Uh, They're in the form of a a rather arcane and off ignored uh, procedure called parliamentary estimates. So government has to get the consent of Parliament to spend money before it spends that money. And no one pays much attention usually, because the parliamentary estimates process is quite uh, broad-grained, um, so that you can usually squeeze in a hundred or five hundred or even a, a million or even a billion. But the sums that we are talking about here dwarf um, uh, those sorts of numbers. You know, the government's own moonshot document, dating to late August, that I think the BMJ was instrumental in. In the publication of talks about a hundred billion pounds plus, mm. and um, there is um, certainly no parliamentary authorization for that level of, of spend. Yeah,
1: so it's real. This is unprecedented, of course.
0: It, it, it it's it's absolutely unprecedented. Um, and you know, when I think about the moonshot. Uh, Now, and when I think about how angry I was when I read about it in the BMJ and then in the Guardian, the thing that really got me was here you have a uh, decision for a staggering sum of money, £100 billion. um, I think that's about three times what we spend on the whole MOD in a year that is being spent without any parliamentary approval, on a programme that faces wide opposition amongst um, the expert medical community that hasn't been approved by Parliament, that hasn't been approved by uh, a government's own expert body, the National Screening Committee. So who is making this decision um, that will hang... Uh, a vast debt around the necks of my children and their children. Um, and, you know, I have a view as to what the answer is to that question and I don't like it. But more important than that, I think, is the, is the procedural point, is the, um, the, the absence of a process um, in re- relation to these profoundly important decisions for the country. Who is making yeah. the decisions? We do not know.
1: So it is failure or absence of a process.
0: Is it criminal? It, 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 I mean, it's likely that if we had full transparency of what was happening, there would be criminality all over the place. Um, the criminal law um, is actually, uh, in theory, a very good guard of, on improper governance, the difficulty is that we don't have um, proper visibility of what's happening, uh, and without evidence, the theoretical control offered by the criminal law, in particular misconduct in public office, is only that. It is only theoretical.
1: One of the particular uh, complaints uh, has been this, this this cronyism, this kind of loyalty to friends, to associates, uh, allowing them to benefit. Um is, is this unique with this government? Is it a particular problem with this government? Um, and if so, how do we create a system that stops it from happening?
0: I mean, as we've been talking, Cameron, I've remembered more judicial reviews that we've got afoot that I didn't mention in my initial um, uh, yeah. introduction. So I'm, I'm remembering that we have a case afoot uh, uh, for... Um, a public inquiry, a case to compel government to agree a public inquiry. I'm also remembering that we have a judicial review challenge afoot to uh, rule unlawful the appointment of um, individuals to keep uh, positions of power um, without an open and transparent process. Mm. Um, I think I mean, for me, this is really troubling because once upon a time, everyone had a clear conception of what it was um, to be a public servant. It was to serve the public interest and not to find yourself torn between the public interest and private um, advancement. Um, And now, routinely, we are seeing a mixing of those two interests. Uh, I think that's the sort of thing that a court is going to be interested in because it is uh, an important um, aspect to how judges conceive of the country in which we live. It is a country uh, that is fair. It is a country that does not discriminate against those who did not go to school with the prime minister um, or are cousins of his um, sister's husband. And um, uh, that sort of um, cronyism in public appointments closes the door to those who were not born into privilege. It closes the door to those who do not look or sound or share the skin colour of the peer group of those who are in power, it's profoundly offensive to our conception of fairness. It's also profoundly deleterious to the achievement of um, the objectives of a good government, because every time you make an appointment from the shallow pool of your peer group, you miss the opportunity to make a better appointment from the deeper pool of the public at large.
1: Yes, exactly. So uh, we would agree that being fair, not discriminating, these are uh, uh, things that we we would want in these appointments. Um, We also know that we're a long way from those in the way that you've you've outlined. Um, Beyond the social reasons and the historical reasons for this um, and the institutional reasons, is there something about our democracy and our democratic process um, or the way our government is run um, that leaves us particularly vulnerable to this um, in the UK, in England? Because I mean, we look around the world and we are a particular... You know, uh, if we're to look at Western democracies, I think we're probably leading the way.
0: Yeah, I, I, so I would point to two features, I think, in response to that question. The first is um, our constitution, um, colon, we haven't got one. All we have is a five-yearly event that transfers um, ultimate power um, to a body that remain in post for five years. We don't have a meaningful second house. We don't have uh, a higher law, a written constitution that binds... Um, that five-yearly parliament to uh, norms developed over a time frame of longer than five years. Uh, So um, that uh, five-yearly event, as I say, gives ultimate power to a set of politicians who cannot be constrained under our constitution. All you have to constrain them is a kind of cultural politeness and adherence to a set of ideas of what it is to be England. I think this is a very English problem. Um, And a government that is disinclined to adhere to those ideas um, can act in a way that is unconstrained. I
1: appreciate that the verdict isn't everything.
0: Uh, And let's take two of the most
1: obvious and current examples, Operation Moonshot, antibody testing... What does success look like for you as an organisation?
0: So Operation Moonshot, we're taking two, and we may take a third point. The two points we're taking are, um, this is a screening programme. You need to consult your expert body before you advance um, with it. Uh, You need to consult the National Screening Committee. We also say your choice of counterparties is inexplicable and wrong. And we also may say um, you cannot spend this amount of money without the consent of parliament. Um, And success um, in that litigation uh, for us will look like government um, improving in relation to those uh, aspects of its behavior. So I had a conversation this morning with a, um, a a manufacturer of tests who said to me, actually, we think things are starting to get better. There is a new sort of receptiveness to challenge. Uh, and a thing that I was really worried about hitherto, I am less worried about now, they are starting to listen. Um, and it's impossible really for me to draw those lines of causation um, between the steps that we take um, and the effects that we seek. Correlation obviously is not the same thing. Um, But uh, for so long as we think we can have an impact um, and people are prepared to back our attempts to have an impact, We will seek to have an impact. Um, I have too much on to pursue cases that I do not think are likely to have an impact. I also don't want to waste people's money. And I also don't want to waste the time of civil servants. Um, We will only pursue cases where we think that they um, can still serve the objective that we seek. And when I think that they can't, we will get out. Um, But, uh, you know, you have to believe that this litigation contributes to the political pressure on government in ways that are helpful. And um, government certainly knows today that which it did not know a month ago, which is that bad procurement practices carry a political cost. And I don't want to be too... Self-aggrandizing about the work that Good Law Project has done, but if you look at the National Law of Office report, you can see that most of their case studies are case studies that we are litigating against government on. And so, I think we are having some impact, and I do think that procurement will improve, um, albeit not as quickly as I would like.
1: So, Joe, we have Operation Moonchart. We have you've listed the other
0: um, issues you're tackling. Are there any new ones on the horizon? So uh, some weeks back, we wrote to NHS England, informing it of its failure to adhere to the statutory obligation on it to treat uh, children referred by their GPs to gender identity services. Within 18 weeks, uh, the waiting lists are uh, more like... 36 months or thereabouts. Uh, And this is a time-limited treatment. If you cannot access um, triaging for puberty blockers within um, three years, um, your ability to access puberty blockers is in effect removed. So um, we are asking the NHS for a clear, concrete, um, meaningful commitment to improve resourcing, and absent that commitment, which I do not believe they will be able to give um, for political reasons, we will issue proceedings. And we're represented in that litigation by um, an all-star team. Uh, the silk acting for us is David Locke, QC, who is most people's idea of the leading NHS lawyer in the country. And his junior is Jason Pobjoy, who is um, the cognoscenti's idea, I suppose, of the rising star of the junior public law bar. We have a very powerful legal team and we are very bullish about the advice that we've received, which is why we will be um, publishing the legal advice that we have. Uh, We um, think that this often um, maligned uh, and hugely vulnerable community deserves better than what it is presently getting. And um, we at Good Law Project very much want to uh, act where others will not.
1: Thanks to Julian Moore. That's it for this podcast. We'll be back soon with more evidence around COVID-19. And of course, Christmas is coming up. So to make sure you don't miss out on anything, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm Cameron Abassi. Thanks for listening.